I'm Jason. I'm John. And I'm Marquis. And this is Just, Just Getting, Getting By. A free talk forum about the creative process and the wounds that hold us back from achieving our goals. Each week, building a roadmap through dialogue with working and struggling artists about how to better manifest a successful show business career. Hi everyone, it's Marquis. This week we spoke with Ronald Pete. Ronald's a New York-based actor who hasn't stopped working since a high school drama teacher recognized his innate talents and thrusted him towards the career of his dreams. After NYU, he toured Shakespeare Regional Theater and has since been landing bit parts in film and TV. Earlier this year, he starred opposite Alan Cumming in the new group's evocative new play, Daddy. This week launches his first ever starring role in a Netflix series called Island. Make sure you tune in this Friday and binge his glorious face all weekend. We know we will be. Please enjoy our interview with the captivating Ronald Pete. Where did you grow up, Ronald? <laughs> I was born in Nassau in the Bahamas and in 1988. And I lived there and grew up there until I was 10. And my parents divorced and my mother took my sister and me to the suburb of Atlanta called Kennesaw, it's right next to Marietta. Most people have heard of Marietta and they haven't heard of Kennesaw, and I don't blame them. <laughs> don't hear about it. If, you don't, if you've never heard about Kennesaw, you're lucky because it's not, well, I shouldn't say that, but it wasn't great for us. It was a transition that was really shocking to go from a place where there's a black majority and we were in an, an international school where we were being brought up around all these different, it was like the United Colors of Benetton kind of situation and everyone was everyone. And then we came to, to Kennesaw and people looked at my sister and me like we were aliens because of the way we spoke, because we spoke like I speak now, like we, we were very articulate at a young age and we didn't sound uh, black to them. They said, you don't sound black. And we're like, well, there were a lot of black people in the Bahamas and we all sounded different. So I don't know what that, what that means to sound black. American black. American black. Mm -hmm. And... And the way we dressed, we went to, we, it was a private school before, so we dressed very, like, preppy, and people were like, why you dress white? And we're like, this isn't white, this is what we, we went to a public school and enjoyed. It was a lot, it was very shocking, the, the, all, of the, all of the changes, but, so I got out of there as soon as I could um, to come to New York, but, yeah. So, so, so you're, um, you were how old when you moved to uh, Georgia? I was 10, and then I left when I was 18 to go to NYU. What happened between those years that made you decide you wanted to pursue acting? Hmm. I don't think that acting seemed like a viable career choice until very, until like right before I left. My parents were, my parents made, were self-made people, but they both got their um, doctorates. My mother is a pediatrician, my father's a, a a lawyer and a politician, but they both made, like paid their own ways through through college and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and they just wanted my sister and I to be as well rounded as possible, and to like you can do whatever you want, but as long as you're excellent at mm -hmm. it, as long as you're the best you can be, and kind of they didn't say, but it was implied the best there is, <laughs> right? And so, um, so in school, I was. I did everything. I did like chorus. I did model United Nations. I did, I was a captain of German club. I did everything. Like I just did everything. And so it wasn't, I didn't think, Oh, I'm going to be an actor. I thought I'm probably going to be a lawyer. And I, and I went to the school Emory university that was outside of Atlanta and Decatur my freshman year. Um, 
on a pre-law track, but mm-hmm. I liked doing acting and singing in, in school and I was good at it. And so I was, so I double majored in philosophy. That was like my, my pre-law major, but I also did drama because I liked doing plays. Um, I did plays in, in, in high school, but I was never, I was never like the lead in anything. And I never, I just liked doing it. And my freshman year at Emory, the guy who ran the theater department cast me in the first thing that I auditioned for, which was like a main stage. And their main stages were aligned with an actual equity theater called Theater Emory. Yeah. And so I, the first thing I auditioned for was this two-hander Tennessee Williams play that, and I was one of the people. And it was a Theater Emory show. So I was like all of a sudden thrust into a really commanding role. And he kind of took me to the side and told me, I think that you should do this. Like, I don't think, and, and uh, Emory's theater program is skews more towards theater administration and dramaturgy and theater like criticism than acting. And so he's like, I think you should do this. And I think you should be somewhere where you can really do this. You should audition. He told me you should audition for Juilliard and NYU. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know about all that. And I don't know that I want to go to New York and spend all that money and like tell my parents. So he, and he's like, well, there's there's a regional audition for NYU that comes down to Atlanta. So like, I will coach you. And and, and he did. And I auditioned regionally for NYU. And then I got in. And then I just transferred after that. Do you remember what monologue you auditioned for? I did. I remember I did two. One of them... I don't remember what it was, but he was a slave. I just remember that it was a slave. <laughs> got to do that slave. Got to right. get them with the slavery. Well, right. You know <laughs> why people love a good slave role. They love a good slave role. And it, and I, and it worked. Um, but that's a good question. I don't remember the other the other monologue I did. But I do remember my the guy who interviewed me, um, Daniel. David, do you know a, 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 a guy who still works at NYU? That's, um, mm, that doesn't sound familiar. Um, I know he still works, and I've seen him. His name is escaping me right now, but that was kind of exciting to to track that person through all, all the years. What a gift know. that guy uh, down at Emory gave yeah. you. You know, he Tim could have, he could have held on to you uh, and, you know, seen that talent and said, like, oh, he's going to be the star of Emory, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, he gave you away and let you have something larger. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had other people in your career since then that have uh, had a similar, mom- given you similar momentum? I've had, uh, I've had people who energetically have been um, supportive I mean, there was a, I worked, my first job out of school out of NYU was at this place called the American Shakespeare Center in Virginia and the artistic director at the time of that place called Jim Warren. He became a, a real um, advocate for me and uh, he helped me. He was a mentor of sorts, but I don't know that he directly led to any employment or any like choices, but he, he always supported me and, I, and, I, and he was a real resource that I could reach out to. Also, one of my teachers... At Atlantic, Anya Saffer, she became a mentor of sorts, and we had a lot of. She was one of the first professors I had who she would like ask me out to to coffee or to to go for walks in the park and just talk about life. And she made me feel like I could actually excel at this thing past just being. She she made me feel like I could be very very like what my parents said like I could be excellent at at this thing I could be the best. When you were transferring to NYU, did you? Have Atlantic as your first choice for the studios? I think that I had, I think I told them Meisner. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think 
I said Meisner and Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because at that point I was very, like, ETW wasn't even on my, I was like, oh, that, that's scary. Like, yeah. <laughs> what about Cap? Was musical theater on the, you said you liked to sing like you're in choir yeah. and stuff? Okay. Did so you, this but you is didn't usually, like musical theater? I didn't give you the deep cut. Yeah. I'll no. give you the deep cut. <laughs> the deep cut is that I, I auditioned early decision out of out of high school for Cap Tony. Uh-huh. I, I and I flew up to New York. Right. And I, I was I, I had like an interview at Brown and an interview at Columbia and I and then NYU was the only performing arts school college mm-hmm. that I applied to because Philip Simon Hoffman went there and I didn't I knew nothing about anything I, just, I didn't even know what Juilliard and Carnegie Mellon and all these other things I just like NYU is where you go if you want to act so yeah. I think I think I want to do pre-law but I'll give my my wild card would be NYU because mm-hmm. I've I've because why not and because Philip Sherman Hoffman is, 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 has, has touched me in a, in a strange way that I don't even talk to people about because the things I've seen him in are really like if you saw them you'd be like this is what inspired you because it's very um other it's very and that's what connected me to him was how he portrayed this like, aloneness and this otherness and, and I always felt other in my environment and I, mm-hmm. I felt like oh I see the same experience of otherness in this man and I feel less alone. So what were some of those films that touched you? Um, Love Liza was one that I saw mm-hmm. and Happiness yeah. was mm-hmm. one I saw and of course Magnolia and we had we had IFC like the, the IFC channel at cable in my, in my house so I'd like I'd be I didn't have I had friends, I guess, but I wasn't really social, so I'd stay home a lot and watch these independent films on my TV. Watch like Mysterious Skin. I like watch a lot of the very things that, that you're like, whoa. And but those are the things that that can, I felt like I saw myself or something. I saw an an aspect of my personhood that I wasn't seeing reflected in my actual environment in these films, and I felt less alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, when I saw that, it didn't it, my my mind didn't jump to I need to do this. It yeah. just felt like, oh, this feels nice to, to, I feel like I'm in communion with this thing because of these people. But then it became, and, 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 and my, my high school, my cousin who was my same age and some other people in the drama department, like we're all going up to NYU to audition for, for the audition yeah. for NYU. So I was like, let me do it. This way I went up and my mom came with me and everything too, but she was a little bit skeptical, but she was like, it's an event. And then I auditioned for Cap 21 with some random song and some Neil Simon monologue. And it wasn't grounded in anything. And at that point too, I didn't know what acting was. I just, I was like, da, 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 da. it wasn't yeah, yeah. grounded in truth and psychology and philosophy and anthropology and all those things that I ended up appreciating you could do as an actor. It just seemed like a thing. So I'm, I'm okay with the world that didn't happen, but I auditioned for Catherine one. I didn't get into Catherine one or NYU at all. They're right. just like, thank you, goodbye. And then I thought to myself, okay, well, that means I'm not supposed to do that because yeah. the universe is telling me that I, I'm not supposed to do that. So I, so I will go to Emory. <laughs> so was that discouraging once you got to Emory, like when you first started to hear from your mentor there mm-hmm. that this was something you could do? Mm-hmm. Did you feel kind of like, oh, I tried that and it didn't work? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I went through a real bad, because of that, I went through, because that was the first time I put myself out there in, mm-hmm. in like, I could be an actor kind of thing, because it's so bolted. And then I failed so, so, so dramatically. It felt, mm-hmm. felt like the most dramatic. I remember, like, waiting for and the, the mailman coming and, and mm-hmm. seeing the small envelope and me just like, ah, beating my chest <laughs> on my driveway, just crying uh-huh. and be like, I'm a failure. 
I mean, I really went there. I really went there. And like, mm-hmm. I told my mother, like, I'm not going to like do anything at all. And she's like, yes, you are. And she's like, you're going to go to a different school. You're going to go to Emory. You're going to go to Brown. You're going to go wherever. And I was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to live my life. <laughs> so, but then, so after that, going to, going to, um, Emory and them saying, like, we believe you, I was, I was skeptical and I was, I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to be like, there has to be more to it than what I what I thought there was to it before because I think I was coming at it from a very like wide eyed kind of nothing under no substance no like rooting to it so I was like if I'm gonna really do this I have to think for myself I have to make it as complicated as though I was going to law school so I mm-hmm. have to appreciate all the different facets intellectually and academically of this as a profession in order for me to and when I went to NYU I still double majored in philosophy Andrew so I got a I got a honors degree actually from the school of arts and sciences for in philosophy along with an honors degree from from drama from because my again the like be excellent so like right. i had to i was like this is the way that they can get behind me going to drama school is if i i, I have a double major and like a ba and a bfa and i got honors in both then they can be like okay cool right this is fine this That's is fine let him do let, this. let him do this has the has the philosophy minor um or double major influenced you as an actor just in that I'm always neurotically thinking about everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do you that about you? Yeah. So it's like, I love that about know. you. So do you dive pretty deep into the roles that you take on? I I do. It depends on which role, but mm-hmm. I do. And it's, I don't do it on a very, it's very like internal. Mm-hmm. So I, cause I see people, I see interviews with actors and I sometimes think like, wow, they really like, they did their research and the, I don't sit around like doing research and compiling boards of images. And I don't do that, mm-hmm. but there is something I go somewhere in my head, like really, really deep that I am not, it's not very conscious, but when I'm done with the part, I always feel like I did that. It's like it's kind of surprises me and, and I, and it's, and it's, I like that. I like that you can change the molecule, the, like the molecular kind of like alchemy of your body because of a character, because you're really living in there. But I don't do methane mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It just happens. I feel right. Like it's just, Is there a lingering effect when you finish a role? Like, like with your last run on, on mm-hmm. this play that you were doing every night? Um, that one was a big, that one was a lot. Tell us about the play. Okay. Daddy, daddy. That is a melodrama in three acts by... Wunderkind Jeremy O'Harris and it centers around a young black queer artist named Franklin who lives in LA um, and you meet him at a, a, a night that he's very high off of drugs and is in the mansion of this older white European art collector named Andre and they and that they have a meeting of of spirits that that sets into motion this like crazy um courtship and like and and everyone else in franklin's life has some kind of opinion about it and and we see franklin grapple with where he fits into a relationship with an older man with an older white man and and being like a kept boy in this like white world that he does that never quite accepted or wanted him. He was like out of art school and has been toiling to try to like make it and to be seen in all of these different very white artistic spaces and has been struggling and failing at it. But now that he now has like this patronage that he doesn't really want, he just likes 
he just likes how he feels around this white man because he makes him feel beautiful in a way that he doesn't. He's never felt beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he makes him feel heard in a way that he's never felt heard by his friends. His friends are pretty vapid and they can't talk about art as intellectually as he, as he can, but this white man can. And, 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 and he hasn't, he's traffics in spaces where his black body isn't seen as desirable, but this man does see him as desirable. So he's lapping up all of that. And then all of and that aligns with his artistic kind of, um, burgeoning and all of a sudden his his work is 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 hitting it and and he's becoming like a star and he's trying to tell himself and the world that it's not because of the man who he's now in a relationship with but it's because of him and right. and, and and while all of this is happening he, he also unearths some trauma about his absent father and the, and the really bad relationship between his, his mother and his father and then some bdsm stuff that's happening with his lover who he starts they start a relationship where he calls him daddy and that's kind of parallel to the to unearth the, the trauma unearthing mm-hmm. and so you're so he's navigating what is this relationship and what is this trauma i've been suppressing that is starting to bubble up and why am i starting to project my daddy issues onto this new man who's like a, who's who's in this position of power in my life who i do think that i love but what does love mean and is this a power play and like can i use this to my advantage while also telling myself that i really love this person but i know that that it's helping me in my career and helping me understand some of my stuff and then his mother this is this his very um christian southern mother comes to town when he stops answering her phone calls and like and then the conflict arise because she doesn't like this older man and she thinks he's a devil and she also mm-hmm. sees a lot of uh characteristics in that man that remind her of the father. franklin's father yeah mm-hmm. and so she 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 thinks that it, that she, it needs to end and she like takes it upon herself to try to sabotage the relationship and um so it becomes like a, a battle of these people are battling over his over franklin's spirit and his soul and the more that they battle and try to take away his agency and tell him or tell each other what he should be and tell him what he should be. The kind of surrealist element of the play itself is that he starts reverting into childishness. And so like when his mom comes to town, he starts, Oh no. We love, we love when Siri hops in. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, so when she comes to town, he starts reverting into being a child, like a teenager. He's 26 to begin with the 20 mid twenties. And, he becomes a teenager in the third act once the, the man is Andre, the lover, is, and he, he proposes to him and he says yes. And then once the marriage is, the, the third act is like the marriage is about to happen. And once the third act starts, he's now a, a toddler who, who can't speak, who just has, who's like, who's rendered speechless and everyone else is speaking for him. Ever, the world is happening to him and he has wow. nothing. And then the final scene is him breaking through all of that and like really having this long impassioned speech about like self autonomy mm. and and in that speech he becomes the villain in like true melodramatic form the hero becomes a villain i have always been like i don't understand how he's a villain but it's that everyone in, in his world once he actually says i am me you cannot not i am me for me and not for you i'm not living for any single one of you they all his friends and the lover and the mother all leave him they all condemn him and they all leave him say like, you're gonna like you're on your own we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with this person who's actually come into his power. Whoa. And the play ends with him singing, I will be my father figure to himself. This, the song, uh, George Michael's father figure is a theme throughout. Yeah. And he ends up 
like just singing it to himself. Like, I will be my father figure. Mm-hmm. I will be. And his father calls at the end of the play. He doesn't answer the phone call, and he realizes like all that trauma with his father. Just like all of this, all the his life has just conspired to make him find like figure out who he really is and who he wants to be. So that sounds a, so <laughs> deep. It's really deep. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a story that I feel like is relatable in many senses just in regards to like coming into oneself and then also trying to navigate in white spaces as a black man um it's you know there's things that come up where it's kind of like oh there's trauma here that i may not realize prior to stepping into it how was that for you taking on the role i mean i've i met jeremy like three Years ago, maybe four years ago, we connected because I did this short film and the people who made the film knew Jeremy from L.A. And Jeremy was coming into town just to self-produce a reading of Daddy. And he sent me the script and I was like, and I read it and I was like, I've never experienced, I've never encountered any kind of work like that. Mm -hmm. It was so, it's very ambitious and, and I like ambitious work and I like work that is... I like work that makes you think in ways that you not that you don't usually have to think because I'm always thinking in ways that most people don't think. So I, so I was like, okay, this is like me. This is cool. And the parts of to go back to the idea of personhood, there are parts of Franklin's personhood that intersected with Ronald's personhood mm-hmm. in a way that I've never encountered anything I've ever auditioned for or read anything. And there are parts of myself that I keep very private and that I'm like dealing with my own, how I want to be in relationship to the world with and how I want to, and those were just right there on the page where I was like, I don't have to do any, I don't have to change anything molecularly about me to, to be able to mm-hmm. get into that space. Cause that's where I am. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I was like, that, that, that was so electrifying to me and scary and threatening. Right. And I told him like, yes, 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 yes. He was like, okay, we'll come and we'll do like a, a read at this person's apartment. I'll see how we vibe. And I did it afterwards. And he's like, you're my Franklin. And he stayed true to me since that day in like 2015. And since it's got, it's gotten all these different iterations, he's now gone to Yale and he just graduated. And then like his star is rising, but he's been very loyal in that he's like, you're always, you have always been my Franklin. You will always be my Franklin. And so he carried me through this production. Um, uh, but so living in that, but this guy, man, if he said that he goes through a lot, like he goes through a lot of psychological pain mm-hmm. and he especially once he's once he's unearthing the the trauma with his with about his father and how much and his internalized hate and his how he always thought that he was ugly because his he only his only memory of his father is his mother screaming out the window that he was an ugly do nothing n-word and like that's what he's run in his in his mind over and over and over again until it became silent and then when it was unearthed it starts like thumping like music mm-hmm. he can't stop and that's kind of like why he's never thought he was attractive enough and now this man is saying he's attractive but he's like coming into his sexuality and all of that's like this this clusterfuck and i've never had a relationship with an older man like that's mm-hmm. but but i've there are so many other elements of franklin's identity that i felt very much like be, like feeling like you're a black body in these white spaces and artistically that and you don't know not you don't know how to navigate, but the ways in which you, you put on different masks in order to pass. Right, the code and, switching. Yeah, and how that can, how that, ob- it takes a toll on you, and it took a toll on him in a way that was very, uh, t- uh, like, tangible. Or, and it takes a toll on me in ways that are a little bit 
more insidious and, and, and nuanced, but mm-hmm. I was given an opportunity to like really explore those things. And I, but I didn't use it as a, as a, as therapy. I didn't right. use it to be like, Oh, this is me. And that this was the thing. Me. Correct. This is my everyday. Correct. Or like this is me exercising my demons. I didn't do that. Right. And I think I have a lot of friends who came to see the show and know that like the parallels and they were like, are you okay? Are you taking care of yourself? Because this is really traumatic stuff. And we know that this is like, it hits a little bit close to home. Also just on the physical level, I was fully naked in multiple scenes, which is not something I've never done. Something I, I remember when we were doing your, your film, like you were talking about nudity way, way, way back when I was thinking like, I don't want to be naked. And, and, and like in, in a, in a, in a movie, I was thinking to we myself. We still had like, to masturbate. Yeah. But like, off but, camera, but, but yeah. it was, it was suggested. <laughs> like, and I, and that's so like, so for me to be like, okay, I'm going to be naked in front of all these yeah. people. And there was similar, like, there was a full pool, a real size pool that they built in the, in wow. the stage. And like, there was simulated sex with, the person that played Andre, um, and, and, and that was, and there was a lot of BDSM stuff. So like my actual naked body being slapped on my butt, mm. my face being licked on my face. I had to sit on a naked man while I was naked and put his thumb in my mouth. And there were things that were really out there and to, to do at all, much less to do in front of an audience of people. So and those things were in and of itself really like risky and daring. And then to go into the, the place where you had to kind of like, and so ever the last scene of the play I had to I was just like in tears every single night we did 54 performances every night just a torrent of like real tears you know mm-hmm. so, so how do you protect that. yourself what, what how do you I sort stopped. of protect the psychic barrier against allowing that to to infiltrate affect your life yeah. well you can't really yeah I just I've I moved here like when we were in the first few weeks of, of um, uh-huh. rehearsal and I was before I was in a three bedroom apartment. And so here was, is a one bedroom. Here's a one bedroom. And that's my first place yeah. of my own. And it's right. this I had everything to do with how I took care of myself. Mm. I'm just knowing that I could come back to this space and just kind of disappear. Yeah. And I kind of fell off socially with my friends and just would come back home and I would meditate, I would drink wine, I'd have pasta every night, I'd listen <laughs> to music, I'd read, and then I'd like run in the mornings. And then I was working out like a fiend because I wanted, because mm-hmm. I wanted my body to look yeah. the way. Right, you're like, like, I'm going to be new. Like, exactly. Like, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it was, it was rough. It was rough. And all the people who were close to my life were like, it was rough. Yeah, like you like we couldn't like you wouldn't come out and talk to anybody because I was because I'd have to reckon with things that that were tough mm-hmm. that I didn't know that I was ready to reckon with in my own life and because I wasn't trying to use it as therapy or do mm-hmm. that was it was like I was coming up against things doing Franklin every night I was like this is actually something that I need to deal with in my real life but I don't know that I want to deal with it right now but I can't ignore that it's something that I want to have to deal with like like pointedly the, de- the decolonizing my desire. Because mm-hmm. in my and we don't have to go there right now, but but that's something that I've, I'm very aware of is how how the the choices I make and people who in which I I, I choose to engage in rela- romantic relationships yeah. with, and how I don't know that those are always serving me. I don't know how mindful or intentional I am about the, that kind of like sense of attraction. And in this play, it was a lot about like the mother. It, it was an examination of why are you attracted to that person? Like why are you attracted to that form of a person? Mm-hmm. Age and race, and yeah. I was, and I was like, yeah, man, why are you always attracted to 
my voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've always thought it was interesting when I see a movie uh, and there's a young, uh, you know, new Hollywood face and it's like, oh, and they're doing all their scenes with Meryl Streep. And it's like, mm. oh, I wonder what that experience is like to be thrust into, it's one thing to get a big role, but then you're acting with Meryl Streep. I mm. would say that you being in this play opposite mm. Alan Cumming, Alan Cumming's the the New York stage version of of, of Meryl Streep sure. for the movie. <laughs> sure, what was sure. that experience of finding out that that you know you're going to be vulnerable, you're going to be naked, you're mm-hmm. going to be all these things, but you're going to be acting with Alan Cumming? Yeah, and could you ever forget like, oh my god, that's Alan Cumming? Like, did you mm-hmm. ever just see Andre, or was like mm-hmm. every day was like, oh my god, this is, I'm sitting on Alan Cumming's lap, thumb is <laughs> <laughs> in my mouth. Um, I've actually never seen I had never seen anything that he'd done before he was one of those names that's like (laughs) yeah that that, that you know Uh that you know and we did a uh in-house like producer reading at the new group of this a year before like a year ago before um with and that that was the first time I met Alan and we and they were kind of doing it to see like chemistry Chemistry. almost and 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 it worked out and I thought to myself he's a great fit for the character for Andre Mm -hmm. but I don't after meeting Philip Seymour like Philip Seymour Hoffman was the only person, only celebrity I've ever like really been obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And I, and I met him and like, got to know him a little bit. I didn't like, I could see him, I got to know him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then he passed away. And that was, then that struck me really hard. And something in myself, in my mind said, I'm never going to idolize or like, do, like mm. deal with, that I'm not going to deal with like making anybody bigger than who they are. And, and that has served me well. And so I don't, I didn't have that kind of, even, and and you might be like, Oh, you just reverence for him because he is like a stage legend really in the, in the, in the, in, in in London and in, and in New York. But I didn't luckily have that kind of idea of like, Oh, this is Alan. I was like, this is another actor who is across from me. And we're here to tell the story together. And I think that he did that he he played the part of Andre really well and made it and and um I think we told the story pretty well together. Do you consider that role one of your greatest triumphs in your career or if not hmm. what do you hmm. consider? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that there's this uh, value system that that's placed I've been I've been interested in this this value system that's being placed on um, like pro how, like how high profile a thing is. Mm-hmm. I know that I was doing Shakespeare in what people would call like relative obscurity in um, in Virginia out of school, and I thought I was doing hard work and doing it quite well for mm-hmm. a twenty two three year old. But no one and the people who saw it responded as such. But it wasn't. At Shakespeare in the part, it wasn't like it wasn't a part of this hype machine. But mm-hmm. I thought like the actual work of like when you go to drama school and you realize like what the work is and then what the work of storytelling is and what the work of Shakespeare, which is a really hard thing to do textually and emotionally and communicatively, um, and to be in your body. Like I feel like that is hard work that I did, but no one, but there was no one there to say like, hey, hey, hey. So I think from a career standpoint this is the most high profile thing that I've ever done. And Mm -hmm. in that um, respect, then that's exciting. Mm -hmm. And I do think that 
for like my entire 20s, I was doing a lot of off, off Broadway, experimental, new play development, new uh, uh, musical development things. And right. that fed my soul. I didn't go to school thinking, I want to be famous. I was like, I just want to act. And I've been doing that since I've, since I've graduated. And I, I know that a lot of people I went to school with can't say that. Like that I've been acting actively, predominantly with, with my time since I graduated in 2009. But this is, but now things are blah, blah, blah. And like, mm-hmm. I'm doing a TV show too on Netflix that's coming out in a few months. And I know that that's going to be, so I'm trying to like mentally prepare myself for everyone coming out of the woodwork and being like, you made it. And me thinking like, that's not so. Like that's not that's not so. Like mm-hmm. I've been making it, and I've been doing the work. I've been doing a lot of things that have been challenging in many different ways for a long time. And if you know, and if you've been like following that stuff, you've been seeing that I've been trying to cultivate uh, a consistency of what well, it's not even excellence, but just a consistency of like good execution of like of storytelling and and being and being and being like soulful and being honest which is what i think acting should be about and 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 so but this was a very challenging role aside from all that it was just like to be on stage for three hours as in every scene for three hours and to be naked and running around and being beaten up and like going from 26 to an infant like all these things like textually too jeremy is a poet and so a lot of it was like poetry that you had to make sound non-poetical and like make it sound immediate and like the high style of it and the truth of it like there was a lot of, it was gymnastics it was right. like a gymnastic event uh, for acting so in that way i was it was a, a try i feel like to have accomplished that right. is some is not a is nothing to scoff at any actor doing the, the role of franklin is like this is it, a, it's a, it's a role yeah it, it's a it's not it's, you can't just walk you can't stroll through that role it's i think you touched base on something really interesting which is how today there's this measure of what success is mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the entertainment industry or acting or music or anything in that sense where once you've made it on the big name show once you're on netflix or Hulu or what have you, then you've made it. But like you said, you've been making it since college. How has that been? Like once you were out of college, what was that first role and how did you keep it consistent? If I, my biggest gripe in retrospect about, and this is, it's gnarly because about NYU is it's gnarly because NYU's NYU is unlike anything else. There's like a conservatory program, but they take thousands of kids. And and I so it's not there's no way for them to have a real showcase. There's no but mm. but that said, they we pay so much more money than a Juilliard or a Carnegie Mellon, which does have a showcase for their kids, and which is a bridge to like the working profession mm-hmm. for them. And like the thing with so many kids who go into NYU don't quite know what they want to do with their lives. And they're kind of like, I think I want to be an actor. I think I want to be blah, blah. And that, and that leads to like a, uh, like a, a median of almost apathy. Where they, 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 there's a quality control issue because right. there are people there of the people who go to that school who are actually like, this is what I'm going to do. I don't want to go to Yale for MFA. Like, I don't want to go to an MFA program. Like I'm doing this at this early stage because I know what I want to do. I'm very serious about acting in particular. I'm, I'm, I'm going to perfect my craft and I just want to work. Like that's a very small subset. I think mm-hmm. of, of the people who are actually going to the school. Um, I will say, like, I, there was no showcase for me or at Atlantic or at NYU when I was there, and I was in a I was in a stage production that at this at, this is when they first started these 
the stage works where they're like, we're going to like have shows that we invite agents to. And that's going to be our version of a, of a, of a showcase. Right. But I was cast as a lead in like the black show. And like, they didn't invite anybody to, to, right. to that one. And, and so it was very, I just left school and felt like I had, like I was starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could have been moving from Wisconsin to be like, I want to go to New York and then go to New York. And yeah. I felt like I was in the same Pool all you have that. is the line on your resume that says NYU, but other than which that, means, it's like which I thought meant everything. Yeah, but like think. casting directors are like, none of them are like, all right, cool, great. Right, they're no. like, I've seen a lot of NYU kids who are bad, and like yeah. some who are good. So they're they're like, it doesn't it doesn't have the cachet that. And I had a big chip on my shoulder for a while after. Mm. Well, well, first, like when I I was like, okay, I don't have an agent. I don't know about all these things. I don't know about agencies. I don't know about anything. Yeah. So I sat down like right after I graduated and just thought to myself, what can I do for myself? Okay, I can in school, people kept on saying you should do Shakespeare. Like in the Shakespeare class, I excelled in like we did our Shakespeare production. I was the lead in that at Atlantic. And I was like, okay, let me do Shakespeare. Shakespeare. So I went and Googled top Shakespeare theaters in U.S. Hmm. And like all of them, I went to their websites and saw they had open admission policy or, or open, um, um, what do you like, like audition policies. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the ones who did, I just, I sent them snail mail and emails being like, hi, I just graduated from NYU School of Arts and I'd love to be seen for like when you come to town to New York to like hold auditions. And the one that responded to me was the American Shakespeare Center. And then I went to their open audition and then they offered me a job and that was the same year i graduated and i was and it was away and it was a year-long tour around america and i always thought to myself that's exciting like to do shakespeare and to be on a tour and and i don't and i don't think of myself as a film or tv actor now anyway because i feel like i speak too i don't i speak too not too well but like i speak in a way that's like practiced or something mm-hmm. like that and i was that I, I held that against myself for a while. It's like, you need to like relax. You need to be able to like talk like Too much Susan Finch. Exactly. <laughs> like, you need to be able to like, like muddy up your, t- your speech. And like yeah. also. Well, especially for like the type of roles that Correct. are usually casted for TV. It's like, yeah. if you're for a black, black man, man, you yeah. gotta be gangbanger number five. Or exactly. At least be able gangbanger to. number five. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, th- that's kind of related to something I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Going back to like when you moved to the U.S. and you dress too white, you talk too white. Like, did you learn to code switch into the local vernacular to blend in, or were you like right away just like, oh, I'm gonna stay different from you guys, and it's okay if I don't have friends. I'm smarter than you. I work harder than you. <laughs> I'll just be. I don't know that I ever had the. I never had the like elite. But I, I never thought I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. It was more of a, which is so strange because my parents are so proud. They're they're West. Indian they're like my dad is Bahamian has been for generations my mother is Jamaican and if you know like black people from the Caribbean are very proud people mm-hmm. and like of course and those two like made themselves and were very and they were aristocratic man they were socialites they were and and they the and we were brought up my sister and I were brought up to see ourselves as to never see ourselves as other, to never see ourselves as less than to mm-hmm. see ourselves as as good but not better than like we'd at our, our birthday parties we'd have my mother would get children from like the the um the who were homeless who were, like in the shelters they'd come to our birthday parties and get and, like sit at the table with us and like get to like blow out the candles and get presents and everything that, that she would like get these kids who felt like they were so we it was a part of our of our upbringing to see ever to, to like be community oriented mm. to like do for others not to think that you're better than others but to think that like everyone is good and yeah. think that everyone is is worthy um they were great parents in that way but that but 
the shift to uh, to Georgia was strange because my my dad was not was like suddenly absent, and then like there was this. It seemed like the, my parents weren't the primary people uh, influencing my psyche. It was like mm-hmm. the school environment became the primary environment that was influencing my psyche. And Especially those kids, at that age. At that age. At 10, it's very impressionable. And like, you want to fit in. So like, right. to your question, yeah, I went by Ronald, which is my, my given name. And then when I went to, when I, when I moved to Georgia, people kept on like, they're like, Ronald McDonald. People didn't make fun of my name when I was in the Bahamas with people like making fun of my name. They're like, what kind of name is that anyway? It sounds like an old white man's name. So I went by my, well, I went by another name though. It sounds like a white man name, but I, I went by Alex, which is my, one of my middle names. It's Ronald Vincent Alexander P. And I went by Alex because I was like, I want to, that was my way of like trying to assimilate. I was like, Ronald seems everyone's like doesn't, doesn't understand it. Or like the first time I say it, so I'm like Alex. Alex sounds like a very American name to me. So let me just do Alex. And then I changed my name to Alex. And I started dressing differently, but I didn't start dressing like Fubu. There was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was very, it was like a segregated environment. I was the only black boy in any of my classes from age 10 to when I moved to New York uh-huh. and I was wait why is that because you were in honors classes yeah and which is uh-huh. fucked up to say it's to be really as, as if up. like yeah. there aren't a bunch of smart black people and there are but that's but the thing it's very it's, it's very Georgia as yeah. well like it depends on where you are, where you but, are. but and yeah. I was in Cobb County which is a very white very wealthy county uh-huh. and and like high school in particular was I went to a huge high school that was like a college there were a thousand kids in my graduating class yeah. in my class and so it was a it was huge um and I was always the only black man in any of my it was a magnet science and um math school and I wasn't in the magnet program but I was like magnet adjacent like they allowed me I was doing honors in AP and they're like you can just take magnet classes with the magnet kids and there were, I think there were maybe two or three other black men in magnet classes, but the way that it was like parsed out the actual time, like actual Yeah, classes, like not in class like, together. Exactly. I wouldn't be, so I'd never be in class with them. And I was right. only, so that was my, it, it, at lunchtime is when you would see, there were a lot of black people at the school. Mm-hmm. But that was the only time I saw that there were a lot of black people in the school because in any of my, my classrooms, I was the only black kid. Which allowed me to, which put a pressure on me to like be the face of the race, but also allowed me to kind of not have to, like I didn't yeah. do the code switching. And at home, my mother doesn't sound like a black American. My mm-hmm. mother sounds almost people like hear her and they think that she's from somewhere in Europe. They're like, right. we can't like place where, and she doesn't have, she didn't grow up on the streets in Jamaica, which is not. She just grew up, she yeah. was, she, she sounds very refined. She has a very, and my dad too. Both of them had like sound very refined. And so, so you never changed what, the way you talked. I didn't really. And well, well, when I came over, I sounded more like that. I never had like people like, you don't have a Bahamian accent. I'm like, I've never had a Bahamian accent uh-huh. in the way that you think of it. Cause even when I was going to school, I was going to school with a lot of kids who were from, who were like dignitaries, children who were from Britain, like they're from the UK. So I had, when I came over, I sounded like I was almost like I was almost British, but it wasn't British, but it was like something that wasn't American. People were like, different. people made fun of, yeah, yeah, people made fun of, like, you're talking different. And like, some people said, you're talking white, but you're just talking different. So I did work to sound more American mm-hmm. and less British and Bahamian, but I also had a lisp. I had a bad lisp and I was in speech therapy. And so that speech therapy that I was doing, they were teaching you how to speak. Like, and I would do this like once or twice a week with these, with the mentor where they taught me how to speak properly and not lisp. And so I was learning how to speak 
properly in that regard and I had to in order to pass the thing at the same time that I was trying to erase whatever otherness in my voice I had. So it was a it was like an over causation situation that led me to speak like somebody who fucking does Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Which isn't like a really easy way of speaking and doesn't really have any like lineage like that's a thing like the the, the the idea of home i like right now i'm like so i get mad at myself because i'm like i want to be able to sound like my dad i want to be able to sound like a bahamian but i've like at a very at a time in my life where i was like you gotta erase all this i did it and it wasn't like racist but like keep a pocket of it in the back it was erase it so now i when i'm trying to speak like my dad i feel like i'm starting from scratch and like trying to speak like with a russian accent you know like i'm trying to speak from somewhere completely foreign and that's crazy to me that I was that it was that imperative that I erase what made me different that I that I that I can't even access it. it's not even in the research in the recesses sometimes I do it and it sounds terrible it's like you're trying to imitate something that is your that is you that was you and it was your it was your authentic it was your authentic self and yet now me trying to get back to it seems inauthentic it's mind it's a mind fuck right? yeah and that I sent that that idea of erasure of self is is something that even Franklin was going through that, and so I was. I feel like it's very busy. American. It's yeah. very. It's also it's very the bla- Yeah, too. it's very immigrant um, immigrating to America. It's very um, Black American. It's all of that. Like I remember being in middle school, and like when people would call my house, and no one had answered the phone, mm-hmm. and they'd get the voicemail, and then when I'd call my friends back, they'd be like, "Oh, that's her mom on the voicemail. She sounds white," and it's like. There, there's no such thing as that, first yeah. off. However, like, we have the idea of what a black woman sounds like mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. or what a black man should sound like. So then you hear my parents on voicemail and you're like, oh, wait, yeah. who's who are these articulate people? And So offensive. Right. Yes. But, yeah. But that's, articulate equals white. Right. Exactly. Articulate equals black. You exactly. know what I mean? That's, that's a classist thing, too. Mm-hmm. But it's a very specific... And it's that same thing where, um, where being in high school, it's like, oh, I'm one of maybe three other black students in these AP courses. However, the main thing was that the school districts themselves typically aren't trying to put the people of color in those courses, even if the grades are, Mm -hmm. are good. And I remember being in eighth grade where my mom had to call and like go to the school and she's like, why are you guys trying to put him in these classes when he has, when he's third in his class? And this Mm -hmm. was in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. So like third out of 384 students, it's like, oh, obviously he should be in these classes. Mm -hmm. But it's the, it's one of the many challenges of being a person of color in America. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of crazy it's crazy but that kind of micro aggressive that those like micro uh racist acts don't stop in the and this is it's not good i'm not proud that i've like committed this to memory but in the new york in the ben brantley review of daddy he wrote that my that my franklin was too unfailingly poised and articulate to ever register as emotionally affecting whoa that was right. his review of my, and I was, which is I was like unpack that for me, right, unpack yeah. that for me. If I was, if I couldn't, if I was like, 
flinging my body around, being like, oh, I'm messing, messing. And then you'd be like, yeah, that's like emotional. But like, you were too poised and articulate as a black man to ever, for me to ever believe that you're going through something emotionally. Can you imagine Come everyone on. saying that about Meryl Streep? Exactly. She's too poised and articulate, articulate to be emotionally affected. It's insane. But it's the same reason why. It's the same reason why any movie that stars a black man where he is getting beat and he's some slave will be nominated for an Academy Award. Right. However, if it's just telling an authentic story, then it's like, oh no, that doesn't that it doesn't, doesn't seem real. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> does, this doesn't right. Well, yeah. that's, that's why I was so angry that Black Klansman didn't get uh, more any awards. You, you know, know what? Yeah. It, mm. it, it, it was nominated, but I feel like it should have won something mm. because Washington, you know, is talk about a black actor who has been able to, and thank God for Spike Lee, was, has mm-hmm. been able to prop him up. It's like, oh, you're articulate. Well, you know, he happened to find the right role for him, but there needs to be more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there needs to be more respect and, un, and acceptance for that. Mm-hmm. And I love how they touch base on that in that movie, too, where he starts at the police department and then one of the cops are like, you talk white. Mm-hmm. It was literally the premise. Like, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we worked together nine years ago, what I remember most about you is your unrelenting willingness mm-hmm. um, to do, aside from a, a brief conversation that we had about showing nudity, mm-hmm. you were willing to do anything. And of course, we were working in an in, a total improvised. Like we, I think we had 40 hours of footage and mm-hmm. it was all improvised, but no matter what I said needed to be accomplished mm. in that two hour take. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was torture. Um, <laughs> you, you were down. Um, have you in those nine years build up more boundaries? Have you said no more often? Or more yes. And yes. And <laughs> yes. And yes. And no, yes. And no, that was something that when I, when I went to eat, T.W. When I went to Amsterdam, that that changed my life. You're talking about like, what do you do in school? That changed that changed my life because there was so I realized that I'm more that's I'm more aligned with trying to. I don't want to do what I've done before. I don't want to be safe. I want to explore and challenge myself in life. And well, actually, I'm a very like nervous and like particular person in life and so I think that's why I land I skew towards wanting to take more risks in my work because that like I feel like that's an opportunity to go past my own barriers that I won't allow myself to do in my in my regular life so um and like you did uh, Amsterdam open that up to me as, as and celebrated that and I thought whoa and I went back to Atlantic and I was like thinking to myself this is too rigid I don't like this and so I did want to do things that scared me I do want to like just say yes to whatever but like um I have and over the last nine years, I've done a lot of saying yes to things and realize that you has to be in the right environment. You can't say yes to everyone because I've had some mm-hmm. places where I've been like, yeah, I'll say. And I've been taken advantage of in ways not like sexual, but I've just been taken advantage of energetically. Mm-hmm. Or And I felt like I'm a, and I've finished that interaction. And like that was not I shouldn't have said yes to those people. Those people didn't know what they were doing. And they and they, they, that yes was wasted upon them. And, mm-hmm. that, and I need to protect my my myself and protect my whatever my specialness and daddy was a interesting navigation of that too because like what i've realized now that i need to have a modicum of trust in 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 a working environment in order to feel good about saying yes and to everything Mm -hmm. and if i don't trust the makers or i don't trust the space i don't trust everything around me i can't feel good saying yes to or going there with all that stuff Mm -hmm. and even in the the tv show i had to do a lot 
you'll see when it comes out, like I had to do a lot of stuff that I didn't, that I hadn't even, and I only had a pilot episode script and we ended up doing seven episodes. So like, I didn't even know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going on because we were finding out as we went. And a lot of this stuff was like really hard stuff that you could very easily be like, I didn't sign up for this. Like, this is like, no, 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 no. And I had to say to myself, yes, just say yes, just say yes, just say yes, just say yes. And I and that led to a lot of like well like like stuff in my mind because of, and but so I am to answer your question I am finding out that balance for myself like in real time um, of like that I cannot be somebody who says yes to everything but I do want to be somebody who that's just like how that's just it just feels authentic to me to be game for like a lot to be game for a lot. That's incredible. Can you tell us anything about the Netflix series coming up? Sure. It's called The Island. It's um, <laughs> an elevator pitch of it would be Lost meets Lord of the Flies mm. meets Black Mirror. It would be oh, like a good like, elevator cool. pitch of it. Um, <laughs> so it's 10 people. Think of, so it, it just got, so like I'll tell you how it starts and then like watch it and, have, and enjoy all the twists and turns. But like yeah. it, the, it starts with 10 strangers waking up on a desert island, um, all dressed the same nobody knows who no one has any recollection of who they are if they don't recognize each other there's no vessel to indicate how they got to this desert island and they they just try to figure out why they're here on this island and you realize that there is something that links them all together that is nefarious and 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 the island itself starts giving them clues as to like who they are and why they are there and once they figure out those things then then stuff gets weird. Ooh, I expect that. <laughs> uh, you guys are good in mind. No, I, I, they they are really working on it over at Netflix and want to make it the best it can be is what they keep telling me. Um, so it's, I, they're saying maybe August, September at okay. this point. We will release this episode right in coordination <laughs> with it. So Great. Can, uh, pie, 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 pie. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exciting. So um, was it scary? I know that, you know, we've established that you have been making it this whole time, mm-hmm. but there is um, another level of, oh my gosh, yeah. this is going to be in everybody's living room. Yeah. The potential of that. The potential of that. What is the feeling when you walk on the set the first day? Well, okay. So this was, I've been like trying to, uh, I've been like, I've been hustling in the, like the film and TV thing like mm-hmm. uh world just for a couple yeah, so years you met hulu uh one about 9-11 oh, yeah the Lemon tower that was fun right? i was like ah! <laughs> <laughs> but as i told you before like doing like the off-broadway quirky like stuff has been like my bread and butter and then like i got a well okay you asked me before and i'm, I'm gonna make it succinct but like you asked me before like what is it like like what was it like leaving school and like doing what i didn't get an agent until four years after school and so i was doing a lot of like theater blah 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 and then i got an agent and then a year or two and I got a manager like the next year and then the manager helped me get like a bigger agent and then once I got the bigger agent which was only a few years ago then it became like a world of film and TV they were like cute that you do theater stuff like we're gonna like it's time for film and TV and so they like put me through the ring of auditioning for all that stuff which is a whole new world whole new world and there was a learning curve but this thing happened last year and I just and there wasn't it, it wasn't like people, you hear these big scary things about like 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 producer sessions where like you're in front of like a whole board of all these people and like screen tests and all that stuff. And like this the, the thing that I did 
didn't it didn't do that it just i had one audition and then the second audition was the producer session with the director the writer neil abute was the writer of and the showrunner yeah. like the, the writer and like um and the uh, an executive producer and then the casting people were very intimate and then we did that and then like four or six weeks later got a call that was like okay you got it but they were like you got it and you're number three on the call sheet so like you're the male lead essentially and i was like what? Because also in the pilot, you don't quite know what it seems like. There's 10 people. It could be it's an ensemble thing. And then, so I was like, what does that mean? And then as the series evolves, you realize that like some people's storylines start to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more prominent. And like mine was one of those. And that was, that was exciting and terrifying to think like, okay, there's a lot of responsibility here. I've never. I've never even had like a recurring on a TV show and now you're like a series regular, one of the leads on this on this TV show. So there is there's an I and there's an idea in your head that like, okay, there's like this could sink or swim or what, but I that's life, right? Like everything I don't try to be I'm fear based anyway, and so when something strangely enough and something that kind of objectively scary happens, I go the other way where I get really low to the ground and really zen about it. And so I didn't go to set thinking like, oh, my God, there's all this money, all these people and what's going on. I was just I was like, just do your job. You've trained. This is what you've trained for. This is what mm-hmm. trained in school, but also in life. This is what this is why you logged a thousand hours of this so that you can trust that like your impulses are right. That like you're here because you deserve to be here or not even deserve it because they chose you to be here and just trust it. And that was what I did. Mm-hmm. And for the months and they flew us to the Dominican Republic. And that was amazing to be there and good that I was there and not here because I think it would have been more difficult if I had been going to work every day and then uh, dealing with like this life and like wondering what's going on but because right. I was just and Governor's remote. Island wouldn't have worked it wouldn't have worked <laughs> that beautiful remote place <laughs> but it was it was unlike anything I've ever done before and there was again there were a lot of the yes ands and yes ands and yes ands and I met a bunch of great people and for better or for worse whatever happens with it I'm, I'm, I feel like it's marked the beginning of something new I'm gonna watch it I yeah, can't wait um, I'm like the premise sounds incredible <laughs> so what would you tell to finish this off, what would you tell 22-year-old just out of school, Ronald? <laughs> You're enough. I love that. Short and sweet. I feel like that's something that most of us need to tell our younger selves. Or just, you know, ourselves every day. Yeah. Like, you are enough. You're enough, Thank y'all. You so much, Ronald. Really yeah. yeah, this is incredible. This is Thank you. So nice to Thank see you again. You. So nice to see you, too. To talk. <laughs>